Welcome back to Crime Capsule. Before we get started today, I think it's important to clear something up. Here on Crime Capsule, we don't have an agenda. Unlike some podcasts, we don't march under a particular political banner or fly any ideological flag. Our only fealty is to the truth, to delve into the recesses of American history and to examine the stories we find there with as clear a lens as we can. Sometimes that truth isn't what we want to hear. It's not the story we want to tell. Instead, it's the story we have to tell. Today we're speaking to Stephanie Hoover, the author of a book called The Killing of John Sharpless, The Pursuit of Justice in Delaware County. Stephanie is an historian from Pennsylvania, but she's more than that. She's a truth teller of the kind that makes us uncomfortable. This is that kind of uncomfortable. For frankly, there's not a lot of justice in her book, despite the title. There's not even much of a pursuit, and she'll be the first to say so. We're speaking with Stephanie in honor of Black History Month, but what does that mean? It means that black history is American history, and as racial injustices continue to plague our democracy, we stand no chance of creating a more fair, an equitable future if we remain unaware of what happened in our past. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us on Crime Capsule. Thank you for having me. You tell a fascinating story about a case which had once been sort of long forgotten in the dusty Pennsylvania archives, and yet you stumbled across it in a way which brought it back to life. Yeah, it's funny. I I think that probably a lot of writers of history or nonfiction probably have had this happen, but I was researching something. It just, it couldn't have been more different. Uh, It was a pretty simple uh, family history research uh, assignment that I was on. And as I'm scrolling through the newspapers, uh, I saw uh, some really fascinating headlines that really popped out about a, a heinous slaughter of a, of a well-known Quaker in Delaware County. Uh, and the first time I saw the, the first, I, when I saw the first headline, I thought, well, that's, that's really amazing. You know, that's a, sounds like a fascinating case kind of slid right out of my mind, moved back to what I was doing. Then I saw a second headline and a third headline and a fourth headline. And by the time I left for the day, I had all sorts of notes written about this murder of a Quaker named John Sharpless. And I thought, this might be a great idea for a book. You didn't find the case. The case found you, is what you're saying. I think I felt like it did. I really do. I felt like it did. It's funny that you say that because they're, the way that it just kept popping up and the headlines just kept sort of coming out at me, jumping out at me, I thought I almost felt like I was meant to tell this story. So take us back to Philadelphia in the late 1800s. Media today is really just kind of a suburb of Philly. It's part of greater Philly, the sort of, you know, wider metro area and so forth. But 140 years ago, um, it was anything but. It was much more remote, wasn't it? It was considered a rural area outlying Philadelphia. Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. Now, 
Delaware County itself um, was by the 1880s experiencing a real influx of Philadelphia wealth because people were trying to escape Philadelphia to what they considered a more rural area. And that was because of uh, there were various uh, diseases that would pass through the city that people thought they could escape in the country, yellow fever, other sort of um, epidemics that all cities across America were experiencing, certainly not just Philadelphia. And also the proximity to the shores. Uh, a train line, you know, made it very convenient for the wealthy to leave Philadelphia, come into Delaware, and then go further south to the Delaware shore or to the New Jersey shore. So Delaware um, really had started to sort of experience a greater influx of Philadelphians uh, at by that point in time. And this aspect of kind of the the traffic going back and forth and the the throughways actually becomes fairly important to the murder investigation, doesn't it? Because as opposed to being sort of completely isolated where there are only one or two possible culprits uh, in a given sort of farmstead or, or what have you, y- you actually have a much wider net that has to be cast once these events transpire. Not only a wider net of suspects, uh, but because um, because John Sharpless, the victim, was a wealthy man, and because he was very important and elder in the Quaker Church, there were some very substantial rewards that were um, uh, uh, awaiting anyone who could find his murderer. And at the time, uh, as unbelievable as it sounds in in modern life, police officers could collect rewards. Um, and this meant that police officers from all around the country, but met, but from Philadelphia and surrounds particularly, came into Delaware County, which wasn't their jurisdiction, but they were able to do so in pursuit of these rewards. So before we talk about the end of John Sharpless's life, uh, tell us a little bit about the middle of his life. He came from a distinguished family. They were sort of from a line of English gentry that had settled in the colonies very early on, even before William Penn, I believe, had arrived, um, as you write. Yep. Yeah, about two months before William Penn, actually. So yeah, they were they were on they were pretty much on the first boat. Um, wh- what I was fascinated by, uh, Stephanie, was you have this photograph in your book of the Sharpless clan, and there are hundreds of them. I mean, the photo it, it's almost like one of these sort of panoramic photos that you would generate on a smartphone now. But you know, here you have just row after row after row after row of faces in the, the sort of wooded area, and they're all sharplesses of some sort or sort of married into. I mean, what what kind of family was this? Well, they they were very because they were such early immigrants to the to the to the new world, to the new nation, um, they were very, very proud of their heritage. So these family reunions that they had, uh, attracted Sharplesses from across the country and even from England. Sharplesses from England would come over. And that photo that you mentioned, you're absolutely correct. The turnout the year that John Sharpless organized the family reunion was so large. It actually, ha- the group actually had to be taken in two separate photos. And the Sharpless reunions 
were were such a well-known event that even the New York Times covered them. Wow. So, of course, the more publicity, the more Sharpless came. So it was a huge event. Now, Sharpless was, he was living on land that had been deeded to him by uh, William Penn in the early days. It had been passed down through uh, his family. And, I mean, he was sort of what they would call a gentleman farmer. Is that right? He didn't really do much farming himself, but... Uh, was sort of custodian of the land, shall we say? Yeah, he he was not. Um, I mean, I mean, he worked on his farm, but he didn't have to do so for the income, as you say. the the original The original land grants um, encompassed well over three hundred acres. By the time that John's father had inherited the Sharpless lands. It was down to about 300 acres because they had started to parcel it off. So when John Sharpless's father passed away, he sort of divided it up between John and his brother George, and they each got somewhere in the vicinity of 100 plus acres. One uh, one of the brothers, George, got the original homestead, and John got 111 acres adjoining the original homestead. So they both got substantial uh, amounts of land in a county where, you know, land was was valuable. You know, this book is so much a study of contrasts. You hear you have, you know, a very wealthy family that had been here for years and years and years and kind of the among what would you would call the Pennsylvania elite. And then you have a man named Samuel Johnson who is born without a chance. I mean, he's he's not born on first base. He's not born on home plate. You know, he's born in the dugout, right? And and you you write about Johnson's upbringing that I mean, it was almost like every card in the deck was stacked against him from the get go. Well, you're absolutely right about how uh, Samuel Johnson really um, got the worst start that you could possibly imagine. He actually was born in the state of Delaware, which um, back in those days, just prior to this time frame, uh, was considered one of the lower three counties of Pennsylvania before it became its own state. Um, in At the time that Samuel was born, however, it was part of Pennsylvania, which meant that it had to abide by Pennsylvania's poor laws. And this is the saddest Uh, One of the saddest things about the story, Samuel Johnson was actually born in a poorhouse. And the law at that time, and here again, it's just staggering when when we view it through a 21st century lens. But the law at the time said that a black or mulatto woman who gave birth in a poorhouse had to serve three years of indentured servitude to the state. Um, So... Samuel's mother gave birth to Samuel and then had to fulfill this obligation of indentured servitude. And he was then sent to his grandparents to be raised. But the the truth about Samuel Johnson is throughout his life, he was described as intellectually challenged. He He not only started under poor social and economic circumstances, he probably was um, uh, slightly 
slightly, I say, because there's no way to really know. He probably was slightly mentally challenged and was not as quick or as able to defend himself as he should have been. But nonetheless, he moved from Delaware to Maryland and finally into Pennsylvania. And he had been committing petty crimes along the way. And none of them were violent. He was There was no record of violence in this man's background, nothing at all. He stole chickens probably because he was hungry, you know. But at the time, this was a tremendous jail sentence. This was eight months in Eastern State or Moya Messing, and these were not um, gentle prisons. They were not good places to be, even for the most hardened criminals. In any event, he eventually made his way to Delaware County, where it's pretty much assumed that in his career of taking odd jobs, because he really wasn't qualified for much else, that he had actually worked for John Sharpless. And and therefore, the assumption would be that John Sharpless would have known Samuel Johnson by seeing him, by appearance. You know, he would have recognized his face. Um, that's how those two men intersected. Um, of course, you know, once we get into the criminal investigation, then that raises a whole different sort of circumstance. Absolutely. Sure, sure. I mean, it, it is for this, for our purposes here, I, I do not assume, because you do not assume in your writing that Johnson killed Sharpless. It is not conclusively established. He was, spoiler alert, tried and convicted for the murder, but it is not actually proven beyond a shadow of the doubt that he was the killer. And I want to hold that front and center here because so much of your story is a study in how our legal system can at times punish the poor for being poor or punish minorities for being minorities, right? And I think that that's something that we have to um, to remember uh, because it happened right here. You know, this is the story that you tell and we can't, we can't um, pretend it didn't. So let's just jump right in. What happened on the night of the murder? The evening of the murder, it was November 22nd of 1885. And the evening of the murder, there was a, uh, a horrific storm that was passing through Delaware County, heavy rains, howling winds, the typical kind of storm you'd, you think about in any murder mystery, right? Um, Snoopy was on the top of his doghouse, sort of like doing his thing, right? Right. <laughs> um, the Sharplesses were all at home. They were in their home. They were all in their sitting room. John was uh, reading. His his wife, Susan, was writing a letter. Her sister, Jane, lived in the household. And a cousin named Lydia was uh, there visiting with the family. Well, in the midst of this storm, the there came a knock at the front door and John, as was his custom, immediately went to the front door and opened it because that's, that's just who he was. Um, the, the women heard him say, what does thee want using the, the, the Quaker language of the day. And they could hear sort of a conversation going on between John and whomever had knocked, but they couldn't really, they couldn't really make out the content. So after a few moments, Jane, uh, his sister-in-law, Susan's sister, went to him at the front door and said, you know, John, what's going on? Who's here? What what do they want? And John said, well, a, a, a carriage has broken down out on the road and they need some assistance repairing it so they can get 
back on their way and I'm going to go to the barn and I'm going to get some tools and I'm going to help them. Well, Jane, whether it's women's intuition or maybe sort of the weather had set the mood, Jane was immediately suspicious. She, she thought something wasn't quite right. So she looked out and the man that she saw standing outside the house, she, she got a very odd impression of him. First of all, she could not tell what race he was. She even suspected that he was a white man, perhaps trying to make himself look black. Um, she described his face as very smooth, almost as if he may have been wearing a mask. Uh, and this really set her nerves on end. And once again, she begged John, you know, please just give him, we have plenty of supplies here in the house. We have some tools. Just give him those things and, you know, send him on his way here again. That's just not who John Sharpless was. He was determined to help these people. So he went to the barn um, and was in the barn for, for quite a while, I think almost about a half of an hour. In the meantime, the ladies remained in the sitting room and were quite surprised to hear the front door of the home open. And they saw a black gentleman come into the sitting room and he stood there and he looked at them and he and he asked for money. And at this point, Susan Sharpless, who was by all accounts, a very reserved uh, person, she said, you know, we're not in the habit of keeping money in the house. I, I'm sorry, I, I can't give you money. Then he asked if there was a young girl living there. And Susan thought that he may have been referencing uh, they had a young servant girl and Susan was very protective of her and said, there, there is a young girl here. She's not our daughter and we can't give you permission to see her. So this man sort of waited a few seconds and then he left the house. Well, at this point, the women were of course very concerned about what in the world was happening. So Jane went to the barn to see if she could find John. All that she could find outside the barn door was John's umbrella. And she called his name. There was no response. Quite reasonably, she panicked and ran to the neighbor's house, the nearby neighbors. The, those two men came back to John Sharpless's barn and along with Jane entered the barn and found John Sharpless dead lying on the ground just inside the doors. Let, let me ask you, as I was reading your account, it struck me that you have managed to uncover quite a lot of the detail down to the, the words, the statements, the questions uh, that passed between everybody that night. This exchange is really well recorded, okay? Um, Normally, I ask this sort of question, you know, later on in our conversation. But as I was reading it, I was really struck by the fact that you had managed to to unearth really what almost exactly transpired between all of the participants involved. Where did you get this particular information about the conversation in the farmhouse that night? The great thing about covering a trial that is uh, a, a notorious murder case is that the transcripts of the day's court records uh, are often one, either still in existence or B printed exactly 
uh, as the stenography took them in the in the newspapers. So between the actual court records and the transcriptions that appeared in the newspapers, it really was um, it really made it possible for me to fully capture what happened. And the interesting thing about that is different newspapers ran. Uh, 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 how do I say? Some some coverage was more in depth than others. Some coverage, as I said, they literally simply just typeset the transcript. So it was actually not that difficult, thankfully, to put together the events of the night of the murder. There are other situations throughout the case that were less easy to sort of sort through, and I'm sure we'll get into that, but uh, other suspects, uh, other confessions, they were a little more difficult to really get a, get a handle on. But the, um, the testimony in trial was very well recorded. So what did... What did Jane find when they opened the barn door, and what what condition was was John in, and what did we learn from the condition that his body was in? The first thing they noticed was John's hat on the the, the floor of the barn, just beside him, and it was covered in blood. And the reason for that was. Um, John Sharpless had been struck in the head so violently that his skull was broken into several pieces and death would have likely been instantaneous or nearly instantaneous. Um, and, and it was just one devastating blow that just took his life. And the theory by the um, investigators of the day was that somebody was already waiting in the barn. John didn't get more than perhaps two or three steps inside when he was struck from behind and killed. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Now, the number of men is key for later developments. There's one account which says there was one person. There's one account which says maybe there were two people. It's ambiguous what was taking place up at the main farmhouse as opposed to what it was at the barn. There's a lot of uncertainty around how many perpetrators were actually involved from beginning uh, to end, isn't there? And that actually becomes much more important later after the trial. It absolutely is. Uh, it, it's a confusing thing to try to figure out. Was the person who came into the house even part of the group that uh, led John Sharpless to the barn? And and again, I mean, there was confusion as to was the man that knocked on the door black or white? Um, was 
there an accomplice in the barn while the man was knocking on the door. You know, obviously the general, the, the, the black man that came into the sitting room wasn't part of the murder because he would have been in the house while John was being killed in the barn. So you're absolutely right. The, the number of individuals, the identity of the individuals um, is far from clear. And I'm not sure that it ever will be. Although, as you say, as the case progresses, we do get a pretty good idea of who the likely killer was but we'll never really truly know. Was there even a broken down carriage in the lane? I mean, there's just a lot of questions. Who set the barn fire at his neighbor's, uh, you know, on his neighbor's parcel in order to throw the police off the trail moments after the, the killing? I mean, there's just a lot that is left, um, you know, in the, in the wind, so to speak. So what did the family do to alert the police when you can't pick up the phone, right? When you can't, uh, when you don't have the access to the technology that we have today, and you are in a remote location, comparatively for that for that part of the city. And where did they go? Uh, as I recall, the neighbors uh, took their carriage and went and got the authorities to come on scene. And um, it, it, it was interesting because Immediately that night, while the authorities were on site, neighbors already knew what had happened, and it was already generating uh, a, an incredible amount of not only sympathy for Susan and horror at the crime, but interest in the case. Who could have done this? Uh, neighbors were already appearing on scene, and um, it was particularly difficult for Susan because she was... It, it, John and Susan years before had had only one child and that child died at the age of four. And Susan never really fully uh, regained emotional strength after that. So then uh, her, her father had just recently passed away. Now her husband was murdered. She was not in a good place. Who would be, right? Um, so the police tried to ask her questions immediately when they arrived uh, and she was having a very difficult time, but what they finally sort of were able to tease out of her through her distress was that a, a description of the man who came to the, well, Jane provided a description of the man that came to the door and Susan described the man who came inside the house, who entered the house, um, Jane's description wasn't particularly helpful because here again, she didn't know who she saw. Susan's description was, was fairly detailed considering the emotional state she must have been in. She, she thought the man was about 5'10". She thought that uh, he weighed somewhere in the vicinity of 160 pounds. Now, one can only assume maybe she was comparing him to John's height and size. You know, I'm not quite sure how she came up with that, but uh, the thing that stuck out to Susan most of all was that the man had very prominent teeth. We would call that we used to call them when when we were kids buck teeth, um, and, and that because of that he spoke a bit oddly. So they knew he was wearing a, a slouched hat and had maybe a white handkerchief tied around his neck, but but there was very little specificity other than those specific items. 
And that's what they had to start with as far as the investigation. The police ran with the theory that the suspect was black. There, in the police's mind, there was no question, even though there was question in Jane's mind about what she saw. And of course, bringing this around to Samuel Johnson, if Samuel Johnson had indeed worked for the family, it would seem just to be common sense that when Jane said to John, who's at the door, John would have said, well, it's Samuel Johnson. His carriage broke down and he needs some help. None of this is ameliorated by the fact that the crime scene itself is being totally ruined, right? I mean, any investigation which is which is attempting to understand sort of sequencing or patterns or anything like that. I mean, you have this horrific weather coming in, which is soaking the whole area. And then you have the looky-loos, right? There are always these looky-loos who just decide that they can start trespassing on the Sharpless's land and seeing what they can see for themselves. And, you know, we, we cover cases a lot where you have um, sensationalism, right, of course, where you have uh, folks who feel entitled to the case, even though they have nothing to do with it whatsoever. But this was really a new low. I mean, it was really extraordinary just how quickly the integrity of that crime scene was completely compromised, wasn't it? Uh, and there's there's no doubt about that. And and as I say, it was because the Sharplesses were so well known. Uh, first of all, the fact that anybody would want to harm John Sharpless was beyond the capacity for his neighbors to understand. Um, they knew here again, Susan was in sort of a fragile condition. So I'm sure part of it was just true human decency. You know, they wanted to make sure that, that Susan was okay, uh, as, as okay as she should be. But then, as you say, there are just the people that for some reason feel that they are perhaps citizen detectives who want to be in on the case from the beginning so they can help or advise the police in their mind. But yes, it was it was a scene that would have been corrupted, as modern police officers would say. You know, in the book world, we say everyone's a critic, right? Um, sports world, everyone's a Monday morning quarterback. In the crime world, everyone's a Pinkerton, aren't they? Um. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't, no, neither is this helped by the fact that the officers assigned to this particular case, David Roche and Thomas Alexander, I mean, they're Philly's finest, but they are not Philly's finest, are they? No. And, and interestingly, they became a part of the case officially when they decided that Samuel Johnson was their prime suspect and when they arrested him. But here again, they were really more interested in the reward. Now, the, 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 the real problem with that is twofold. Uh, obviously, there's a conflict of interest. If you're getting money to solve a case, you're going to arrest anybody who looks good. But in addition to that, and there's, there's no way to say it, Roche was a racist. That's, that's just who he was. He he, his career actually ended when he opened fire on a group of um, African-American men who were simply socializing together. I mean, he, he finally was removed from the police force, but 
He had a propensity for violence. He had an extremely dubious arrest record. And his partner, Thomas Alexander, had made something like 610 arrests. And it was well known even in the day that most of them were not legitimate arrests. So these two guys, I, I, I don't think that I came out and said it in the book, but my sense always was they were going to arrest somebody, anybody, just so they could be part of this case. And just so they could get a get get the reward. How is it that in your research on looking at early policing in Philadelphia, or early by which I mean mid eighteen hundreds, mid to late eighteen hundreds, how is it that such practices and methods were deemed acceptable that they were used? Was it simply that there was very little oversight of cops on the actual beat and that what happened in one of the outskirts of town kind of stayed in the outskirts of town, even if you had to rough somebody up to get some information out of them? Was it just kind of a turning a blind eye? Or was there something more uh, sort of deeply systemic about this culture of vigilante cops who could just kind of do what they wanted when they were out on a case? Uh, there, there was no doubt that that initially, uh, especially while Roche and Alexander were uh, police officers, that the the corruption started at the top. This was something that chiefs of police and mayors um, they knew what was going on. They knew there there was a systemic racism. They knew that there was violence toward African American men and women. You know, it wasn't confined to just men. It was it was African American. Uh, residents of Philadelphia in general were at the mercy of the, uh, the, the the sometimes violent tendencies of police officers and their their actions went unchecked for the most part. There were, and, and don't get me wrong, there were socially conscious individuals who publicly stated that these behaviors were unacceptable. But it did not in any way, shape, or form change police policy at that point. Um, it was something they did. It was something everybody knew they did. It was something police officers knew they could get away with. Um, and sadly, uh, you know, we think now, here again, looking back from the 21st century, how could it possibly be that this sounds so much like what um, some say that certain police officers these days are still doing, you know, how could this go on uh, for hundreds of years? Sadly, that is just a fact of history that can't be changed. One thing that really struck me as I was looking at their approaches, which we would never condone in the modern age, I mean, they might still exist, of course, there are plenty of examples just from the past five years that have proven that. But one thing that really struck me was your account of the very early reenactment of the entire murder scene uh, that Roche and Alexander staged in the farmhouse. This is before the, the sort of the hearing and the, and the trial and so forth, in which they basically asked the grieving widow and uh, the, the associated family members to watch what happened all over again, and they paraded in a couple of suspects and had them sort of stand in particular spots and say the words that were said that night all over again. And it, they're just saying, hey, why don't you relive the worst night of your, of your life, right, for our benefit and see what we can get out of it. And what did they get out of it? Absolutely nothing. 
No, because Susan, well, f- first of all, how Susan survived that is is beyond me. But but she, you know, and here's the here's the really vital thing to remember. Uh, she loved John. He he was her beloved husband. Was the term that was used. If if there would have been any knowledge that she had, if there would have been anything that she could have told them, wouldn't she have poured her heart out and and volunteered this information? But she kept saying over and over, "That is not the man that was in my home. That is not the man that was in my home." Even Samuel Johnson, to the time that the woman died. She said that was not the man that was in her home, but they just kept, I think that they truly believed that they could wear her down to the point where she would just pick someone just to have it all be over and done with. And she, God bless her for her strength. She never did that. She never threw what she believed to be an innocent man under the bus, even though they were talking about the murder of her own husband. You know, another aspect of the injustice which was on display here, and you still see this in, in policing in certain parts of the country, uh, which is very, very sad, but all all that was known at the time or all that was surmised at the time was that it was a black man who had been involved, right? And so, uh, you know, a couple of, couple of biographic indicators, height, weight, you know, the, the tooth issue, um, the, the sort of speech pattern issue. But what do the Philly cops do? But basically go and round up every African-American man in, in the region who even remotely fits that particular description. And I mean remotely fits. Um, and just because they're black and they haul them in and they accuse them, sometimes they they charge them. And then I'm thinking of one or two instances in which, you know, men were kept in jail for up to a week before their names were cleared, alibis were established, you know, conclusively alibis were established. Um, and they didn't have anything to do with the crime. They just happened to be black. And the investigation just sallied forth as such. It's, it's, it's really remarkable when you look back on it. It wasn't even just police, Ben. I mean, there were just average citizens that would see a black man walking down the street or a black man would come into their place of business and they didn't particularly like the way he looked and they thought he looked suspicious and maybe he's the one that killed John Sharpless. And they would lock these men up in storerooms and, and back rooms and barns and keep them for days. It's, it's astounding what occurred. It really truly is. Now, one thing that is kind of interesting is that you describe a somewhat of a circuitous route by which the investigators came to find Johnson. Um, It's not exactly as though somebody connected the dot right up front and said, here is this individual who has a known criminal record who has actually been on the Sharpless farm before and would know that Sharpless was a a man of means who probably had money and okay, we just need to put the pieces together here and think here's a person of interest at the very least. There's none of this methodical kind of approach, right? Um, What what was kind of funny uh, was your description of how they actually found him uh, thanks to some very, very colorful women uh, who were involved in Johnson's own life. (laughs) Uh, can you tell us exactly kind of how this came to be? 
Well, basically, it was a, a, a spurned girlfriend that um, uh, decided that, uh, boy, you know what? And Ben, you're, you, you caught me on the, the details of this specifically. I know that sounds terrible. But basically, it was a spurned girlfriend who um, decided that she had overheard some conversations that implicated uh, Samuel Johnson in the Sharpless murder, but even during the magistrate's hearing, even the magistrate didn't buy, her name was Molly, even the magistrate didn't buy her story. And in fact, there was a, a second woman who said, no, he could not possibly have done it because he was with me overnight. I know every moment of his activity the night of the murder. Uh, but yeah, he, a, a pattern in Samuel Johnson's life, unfortunately, seems to be that women that uh, he cared for and should have uh, should have probably looked out for him and taken better care of his of his benefit failed to do so it it is uh it's not funny i mean i i, I don't mean to laugh at anyone's misfortune but it is kind of funny that you have a pretty good illustration of the rule that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned right and and here you have a woman who felt like she had been betrayed by this individual and she decided to sell him out for the reward money because he'd burned that bridge and he kind of got what was coming to him in her eyes right that's exactly right and here again when you when you combine that with the police not really caring if any of his circumstances fit the the description of the criminal or if he had any other kind of an alibi or if he simply could provide some other story as to what he was doing that night none of that mattered none of that mattered they wanted to arrest a black man this woman gave them cause to arrest this black man and as i said even though the magistrate was was fairly suspicious of her motivations and stories, which she, she admitted during the hearing, you know, he, the magistrate flat out asked her, you know, you don't like Samuel Johnson very much, do you? And she basically said no. In a modern court of law with, with a dream team of lawyers in the 21st century, she wouldn't have had more than 30 seconds worth of airtime or uh, legitimacy. But back then, her story fit the narrative that the police wanted to build. He's born with the deck stacked against him. His early life, he's having to scrounge and to commit petty crimes to get by. He's not able to get educated. At the moment at which we meet Samuel Johnson, he's not a victim, but he's definitely facing the consequences of a lot of broken relationships, probably because he, he didn't have the capacity to understand good relationships at that time. As you say, there was some impairment there. Uh, Stephanie, what chance in this legal system did Samuel Johnson have the moment he was brought into that first hearing? No, he, he didn't have a chance in hell, uh, to use the vernacular. And you've got to remember, not only were Samuel Johnson's personal challenges uh, really stacking up heavily against him. The legal system at the time, there was no Miranda right. There was no requirement that an, an indigent defendant be given an attorney. So not only were his personal shortcomings going to be used against him, the legal system itself was no friend to Samuel Johnson. 
Thanks as always for listening. Our guest has been Stephanie Hoover, the author of The Killing of John Sharpless, The Pursuit of Justice in Delaware County, available from ArcadiaPublishing.com. Join us next time as we hear the end of Samuel Johnson's story. Again, not the story we want to hear, but the story we need to hear. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. A special thanks to our producer, Bill Huffman, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, production director, Bridget Coyne, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To find out more about Crime Capsule and our dozens of other shows, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew, but after reading police reports, became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story.